0: Welcome to the Manna Bible Lessons Podcast. For more information, visit manapodcast.com. Good morning, Manna. Good morning. I'm going to second all these remarks on Awanas. This is my very first year actually teaching Awanas, and I made the grave mistake of teaching kindergarten Awanas. (laughs) I thought it was going to be easy. It is an absolute nightmare. Um, There is this girl, and I have never, and I'll tell you guys this, you think of children, and I i, I just I kind to of realize I've been married for a little over a year. I don't think I'm ready for one of my own. Uh, there's these children. You think they're going to be the sweetest kids in the world. And I'm not going to, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what, okay, their parent, her parents aren't in here. There's this little girl. We're going to say her name is Jackie. And Jackie, she just has these cutest little curls, and she, she seems so sweet. And the very first day we're in Awanas, she took out a glue stick, put it all the way to the highest level, and began to eat it. Whoa. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. So I immediately snatched the glue stick from this young lady's hands, not knowing what I should do. And I was like, do I take the glue out of her mouth? And I was like, okay, I guess she can eat the glue that's already in her mouth. It's not a big deal. (laughs) But since that day, Jackie and I have had a root of bitterness between us. Uh, In fact, uh, and I'm still working on this, like two Sundays ago, I saw her, she was walking in church. You know, remember they did the, the teacher appreciation day and they had the, the kids walk down? Uh, she was one of them. Uh, she looked deceptive, deceptively sweet that day. Uh, don't trust those kids. But I saw her and I said, hey, Jackie, how? I, I tried to be as sweet as I possibly could. It was a Sunday morning. I was like, I'm going to say hi to her. Okay, I need to be the bigger man. I am an adult. And so I said, hey, Jackie, how are you? And I kid you not, I don't know how, maybe four, four or five years old, this little girl looked at me and without words destroyed my spirit. <laughs> She did this. She looked right at me and went, and I said, "Hey, Jackie," <laughs> and just walked away. And I was like, "I've never felt so rejected in my life." And so, please pray for me in kindergarten, Juana. As I'm still trying to win Jackie back over, I'm thinking this next Wednesday night, I'm just going to hand her a stick of glue and say, "I'm so sorry, <laughs> uh, sweetie. You are right." Uh, but it is a real, a real treat to be able to come and teach this morning. I, I'm the college pastor, um, which means that I do technically minister to adults. All throughout the week. But what I've learned is that 18 year olds are technically not really adults. And so it is nice to be in an adult life group this morning uh, where I know that nobody's going to hit each other or scream at each other. Or, or maybe if you do, uh, that's okay. Um, but I'm really excited to be here. And uh, yeah. Honestly, I forgot that there was this big old room in the church. Pastor Brian, I actually did a wedding last night. And Pastor Brian had told me earlier in the week, he said, Hey, you may be teaching manna. And then I, right as I walked off, I, I was. Uh, doing the way I walked off the thing he started calling me and I was like hey Pastor run, he goes you're up boy and I said okay here we go so it'll be a good time so if you have your Bibles let's do this let's go to Romans chapter 2 uh, Romans chapter 2 we're gonna be looking at verses 17 through 24 uh, now I will tell you right out of the gate I'm a, a whiteboard guy uh, mainly it's for you but it's also for me it helps me organize my thoughts and kind of keep me going in the direction I want to go so we we'll in Romans chapter 2 Or maybe I'm not a whiteboard guy today. The sovereignty of God. Let's see what happens. Uh, There we go. Look at that. Romans 2, 17 through 24. And I'm also not really ever one to uh, give titles to my lessons, uh, but I was walking over today. If there was a title that I could give, today I'm going to call this lesson The Hypocritical Faith. You no, know, it's a pain writing on the whiteboard, because your whole time you're thinking, am I spelling this word right? Am I spelling this word right? All right. I know. I'm, I'm a little nervous about that. Um, before we get to the passage, actually, I want to write a name on the board for you. And I want to see if anybody recognizes this name. If you can't see the board, I'm sorry. I'll say the name. Uh, the name is Robert. We got any Roberts in the room this morning? There we go. Robert? Too many. Too many. All right. Well, this, I hope this isn't one of you. This is going to be really awkward. Uh, it's not. Robert? Courtney. Anybody ever heard the name Robert Courtney before? Robert Courtney, Ron. I knew Ron would know. There's a man right there. Robert Courtney uh, in the early 2000s was probably one of the most successful pharmacists in the United States of America. Uh, he was a multimillionaire. Uh, not only did he make his, his living in pharmaceuticals, but he also had a thriving uh, time in the stock market. Uh, Robert Courtney was filthy rich. He had a multi-million dollar home in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, His kids, when they turned 16, they were allowed to go and walk onto any car lot they chose and pick out any vehicle they liked. Uh, His wife only wore designer clothing, and it said that most of the time she never actually wore the clothes that she bought. They had a vacation home in the beautiful mountains of Colorado. They took yearly, month-long trips to the Caribbean. In every single case, this family was filthy rich. But that all changed in the early parts of 2001 when it was found out that Robert Courtney had amassed his wealth through unethical and unlawful business practices. You see, it turned out that for over 15 years Robert Courtney had been diluting the drugs that were sold at his pharmacy and selling the drugs on the black market to include, and here, listen to this, to include the drug Gemzar which is commonly used to treat cancer patients. And so Robert Courtney was was cheating people with lung cancer and breast cancer and ovarian cancer and colon's cancer and, and other forms of grievous and light-threatening diseases, all because he wanted to make an extra buck. He was a wicked man. He was a wrong man. During his initial court trial, a daughter of a deceased cancer victim looked at Courtney, and she called him a monster in a white coat, a monster who just smiles and pretends to help you. In the early parts of 2002, Robert Courtney was sentenced to 30 years in federal prison. He was forced to pay out over $100 million in damages, and his company, Courtney Pharmaceuticals, was forced to make a restitution fund for Courtney's victims. Now, obviously, what Robert Courtney did was grievous. It was wrong. It was awful. And I don't think anyone in this room this morning would disagree with me on that. But what makes this story even worse is that Robert Courtney... This man who lied cheated and hurt so many people claimed to be a follower of Jesus Christ he claimed to be a Christian in fact at the initial time of his arrest Robert Courtney was serving as the lead deacon at the Northland Cathedral Church in Kansas City Missouri Robert Courtney on many occasions he had given money to his church and actually at that time his church had fallen on hard financial times and he was solely supporting his pastor Not only that, but he taught not just one, but two different children's life groups. And what's really interesting, when you look back on his life, Robert Courtney's dad was a church revitalizer. And so Robert Courtney spent his whole childhood traveling the United States and helping to start, maintain, and to grow churches. He was a pastor's kid. He was a preacher's son. And yet, despite all this, despite his Christian heritage and parentage, despite his devotion to his local church, despite the faith that he claims to possess, Robert Corny still led one of the greatest scams of the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Now, I think you'd all probably agree with me this morning that the Christian church here in the United States faces what a man named Tim Keller calls a crisis of credibility. In fact, recent surveys have shown that a large percentage of Americans still associate Christianity with some form of hypocrisy. Now, when you hear stories like that, you can't help but think to yourself, well, of course people think we're hypocrites, especially when men like Robert Courtney are running around taking medication from people who need it the most. But what we need to understand is, though you and I may never commit a crime as grievous or as heinous as Robert Courtney, we've all played a part in some form of Christian and religion hypocrisy. Because we've all said one thing and done another. We've all preached but never practiced. We've all been, by nature, a Robert Courtney. And the Apostle Paul addresses this religious hypocrisy in Romans chapter 2. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 2, verses uh, 17 through 24. He says, now if you call yourself a Jew, I'm going to pause right there. Now, Paul, when he wrote the book of Romans, he had two audiences in mind. He had Gentiles, and these were individuals who didn't necessarily have a, a rich spiritual heritage, and he had Jews in mind, people who were very religious Now, the earliest parts of the book of Romans, it's believed that it was written to uh, the Gentiles. But as we creep into Romans chapter 2, it appears that Paul's attention shifts drastically to the Jewish people. Now, this does not mean that this passage is any less applicable for you and I. But what we're going to do for the sake of clarity is whenever we see the word Jew this morning, which we will a lot, we're actually going to exchange the word Jew for the words religious person. So with that in mind, let's read verse 17 again. If you call yourself a Jew, if you call yourself a religious person, if you call yourself spiritual, if you call yourself a Christian, and you rely on the law, and you boast in God, and you know his will and approve of the things that are superior, being instructed from the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to the darkness an instructor of the arrogant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law. You then who teach another, don't you teach yourself. You who preach, you must not steal, do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blaspheme amongst the Gentiles because of you. In May of uh, 1967, the 1,000-foot-long ship called the Queen Mary was permanently docked in Long Beach Harbor, where it currently sits to this day. Queen Mary was turned into a luxury hotel. You can actually still go and stay there today. However, I am told that it's haunted, so I will not be going there, even though I do not believe in ghosts. I don't mess with that kind of stuff. My wife wants to go desperately. I'm like, no, 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 we out. It's not happening uh, but you history buffs may know that the Queen Mary did not begin its life uh, as a hotel. Queen Mary actually began its life of May of 1937 as a luxury ocean liner for the world's rich and famous. But when World War II broke out, the Queen Mary was given a fresh coat of gray paint. It was given the nickname the Gray Ghost and was then used as an Allied ship transporter. It's actually believed that over the course of World War II that over 800,000 Allied troops were transported on just this one ship. Pretty impressive. You also may know, if you're a fan of World War II history, that it was not uncommon for Allied soldiers from the United States to go to Europe and marry European women. And of course, when you get married, you also have children. And so when World War II came to an end, the Queen Mary was then transported into, or transformed into a ship and was used to transport the brides and the children of American soldiers back to the United States. And it actually received the nickname, The Baby Boat, so kind of interesting. And then after all this, after it had served the Allied cause and after it had been used to bring a countless number of brides and babies back to the United States, the Queen Mary was restored back to its former elegant glory and resumed its duty as a luxury ocean cruise liner. However, at that time, with the growing popularity and affordability of air travel, the Queen Mary saw its popularity begin to dip. On top of that, the Queen Mary did not have central air conditioning. No, that's not fun. It didn't have outside pool. It didn't have any of the other amenities that its rival ships had. And so in May of 1967, after making nearly 1,000 journeys across the Atlantic Ocean, the Queen Mary was retired from its duties and was sold to the city of Long Beach for a lump sum of $3 million. When the Queen Mary first arrived in Long Beach, Long Beach City officials wanted to transform the Queen Mary quickly and bring it up to modern standards in hope of making it into the hotel that we know it is today. And so when the Queen Mary arrived in Long Beach Harbor, they immediately began a restoration process. And one of the very first things they did, if you were to look at a picture of the Queen Mary, I wish I would have brought one this morning, there's these three massive smokestacks that are on top of the ship. And so when the Queen Mary arrived, the Long Beach City officials thought, okay, we need to take those smokestacks off, scrape them down, and completely repaint them. What ended up happening is when these smokestacks were removed from the ship and placed on a nearby dock, they all crumbled. They crumbled over their own, under their own weight. You see, what had happened is the three-quarter inch steel that had typically made up those smokestacks had actually disintegrated from 40 hard years at sea. And all that remained were 30 coats of paint that had been applied over the years. You see, it appeared that there was a nice, solid steel structure. But at the end of the day, it was just cover-up. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 23. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. This is verse 27. Woe to you, religious people. You are hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which are beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to be people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. In the first century world, tombs would regularly go through the process of what is called whitewashing. Now, as Westerners, when we think of tombs, we, I guess we really don't. We think of graveyards. That's typically where we bury our dead. And if you ever go to a graveyard, there may be a fence that kind of marks off where bodies lay, laid or maybe a, a headstone that tells you who is laid there. Um, but if you go to Jerusalem, even to this day, you'll begin to notice that there are these copious rock formations in the side of hillsides um, where the dead are buried. There are these tombs. And they're almost kind of hard to spot. Uh, you really have to know what you're looking for. And this actually presented a problem for the Jewish people, because the Jewish people were unable to really tell where their tombs were. If they were to accidentally touch one of these tombs, they would immediately become ceremonially unclean. They couldn't worship. They couldn't go in the temple. And so it was common practice in the first century world that to the tombs would go through a process of what is called whitewashing. And it's typically whitewashing. We could think of that maybe just as painting. Tombs would be painted. Now, we know from church history that when these tombs were painted, it was not uncommon for these tombs to maybe have etched in them Hebrew scriptures, maybe a a nice new painting, or maybe different colors of paint would be used. But here's the thing. No matter what you did to that tomb, it was still a tomb. It was still full of dead man's bones. You see, here's Jesus' argument in Matthew chapter 23, and Paul's argument in Romans chapter 2. Jesus and Paul are essentially arguing the same thing. They're arguing that it is possible for you and I to look religiously well. It is possible for you and I to look like our exterior tombs are whitewashed, they are painted, they are neat. It is possible, to quote Romans chapter 2, for you and I to know God's law. It is possible for you and I to be light in the darkness, to be a guide to the blind, to be instructors to the arrogant. It is possible for you and I to be the embodiment of truth and knowledge. But if you and I do not practice what we preach, If we say you should not steal, and then we steal. If we tell someone not to commit adultery, and then we commit adultery on our own. If we tell people to forsake their idols, and then we have idols at our house, then Paul and Jesus are essentially telling us that our faith is worthless. Jesus actually says, he says, you may appear righteous to some, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now, when people begin to come to terms with their own hypocrisy, what we really need to understand this morning is that we all have a little bit of hypocrite inside of us somewhere. When people become terms with their own hypocrisy you hear them make excuses all the time you hear people say oh I'm not a hypocrite I'm a true Christian I've been biblically baptized I'm not a hypocrite I, I grew up in church I'm not a hypocrite I have Christian friends I, I have Bible verses memorized I I know the answers to all the biblical questions you see what we tend to do is we try to hide our hypocrisy behind religious action and the Jews in the first century they did the exact same thing and so listen to what Paul tells them in verses 25 through 29 of Romans chapter 2. He says, circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. But if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? A man who is physically uncircumcised but who keeps the law will, you judge, will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law in circumcision. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from the people, but from God. In the ancient world long ago, God established a covenant with a man named Abraham. And God promised Abraham that he would make him the father of many nations, and that from his descendants he would be blessed. The nations, the world would be blessed. Now, as readers of Scripture, we know that that covenant, that promise that was given to Abraham, has actually been fulfilled because from the line of Abraham, we eventually have Jesus, and through Jesus, the whole world can be blessed. But when that covenant was originally given to Abraham, he also included with it, God did, a covenant sign. And it was a sign of circumcision. Now, circumcision in the ancient world, before the miracles of modern medicine and before the, the standards of, of modern cleanliness, um, circumcision was a process of removing a source of filth at the human body. Because if you are uncircumcised, it exposes you to a whole lot more uh, levels of sickness and disease. And so God actually takes the practice of circumcision, and he uses it as an example as to what God actually does in our hearts. God circumcises our hearts. He removes our filth from the very source of life itself, and he changes our life. Now, in the church age, circumcision has actually been replaced with the covenant of baptism. And what is baptism? Well, baptism is an outward showing of what God is doing inside of us. In baptism, you're dipped under the water, symbolizing the cleansing of your heart. It's like you're being buried and brought into new life. And so you've been baptized. You've been obedient to what Christ has called you. But has your life actually begun to change? You look spiritually well, but inside are you spiritually healthy? Paul says this in verse 28 through 29 he says for a person is not a Jew or a Christian who is one inwardly or one outwardly and true circumcision is not something visible on in the flesh nor is, is baptism just something that happens on the outside on the contrary a person is a Jew or a believer or a true Christian who is one inwardly, and circumcision out of the heart by the Spirit not the letter Paul's point here is essentially this beware of religious inoculation Now, inoculation is a big word, and I like to use that word to make myself sound smart, but I'll be honest, I'm not smart. i looked that up online, (laughs) okay? (laughs) Praise God for Wikipedia, okay? But inoculation, it's a big word, and it's probably not a word that we use often, Uh, but inoculation is a medical term. Inoculation is the process of giving someone a dead version of of a disease so that they won't actually ever catch the real thing. Paul's point here is essentially this. A lot of us have been inoculated into Christianity. We know the things of the bible we know the things of god but we've actually never experienced the real thing i love how a pastor named tim keller puts it he says it is possible to trust in christianity rather than trust in christ and this can happen in a conservative evangelical church paul has shown us a christian condition called dead orthodoxy where the basic doctrines of the bible are accurately subscribed to but do not make an internal difference there is, in, there is an intellectual grasp of the gospel, but no internal revolution. There's a gentleman named Christian Bernard. Christian Bernard um, was a cardiac surgeon who actually lived in South Africa. And believe it or not, Christian Bernard was actually the first cardiac surgeon to ever successfully complete a heart transplant where the patient actually woke up. That's a, I believe that's an important part. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure, remember I had a heart transplant, but he figured it out. So he's the first heart surgeon ever to produce and and practice heart transplants where people regain consciousness. And the story is told that after he had finished his second successful heart transplant, that the patient called Dr. Bernard and said, Dr. Bernard, can I please see my old heart? Kind of weird. But I'll be honest, I'd probably ask the same thing. And so Dr. Bernard, he he wheeled him over to another room and Willed them over to a cabinet, opened a drawer, took out a jar, and there was that man's heart. Handed the heart to the man, and it's actually that like that was the first man in the history of the world to ever hold his own heart. Kind of neat. As the man was holding the heart, he looked at Dr. Menard, and he said, so is this what's causing me all the problems? And Dr. Menard said, yep. Yeah. And then the young man looked at Dr. Menard, and he says, well, I'm sure glad you gave me a new one. And he handed it back to Dr. Bernard, wheeled himself away, and never looked back. You see, this is what the Apostle Paul is essentially trying to get us to recognize. He's trying to recognize that what we need is not more religion. It's not more church attendance. It's not more life group attendance. What we need is a complete and total heart transplant. We need to embrace the gospel. We need to embrace the gospel so that the God of mercy can give us a new heart. You know, one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture... It was actually the very first sermon I ever preached. It was in Pastor Phil's class. I was 16 years old. And uh, funny story about that one. I talked to Pastor Phil like a week before. I said, Pastor Phil, I'm going to preach on this. He said, Good. He said, I need you to preach for 50 minutes. And I thought, Oh my gosh, how am I going to preach for 50 minutes? So I made myself what I thought was a 55 minute sermon. I said, I got a five minute buffer. No, it was a 12 minute sermon. I went up there and I was like, I didn't know I could read that fast. Oh, my gosh, it was all right. But it's it's my favorite story in probably all the Bible. It's from Luke chapter 15. It's the story of the prodigal son. Now, I'm not going to read the story to you, but the story goes that there was a man who had two sons. He had an older son and a younger son. And one day, the younger son comes to his father and essentially says to his dad, "Dad, I would like my inheritance now. Now, I don't know if you guys know this, but you usually get your inheritance after your parent dies. Um, And so if I were to walk to my father one day and say, Daddy, I want my inheritance, uh, that's pretty much saying you're dead to me. And so this young man walks to his father, essentially says, hey, you're dead to me. The father gives him his inheritance. And the Bible says that the younger son went and he lived a lifestyle of the base living. He went and partied, he drank, he, he, he slept around. I'm sure many of you know this. When you begin to spend money, and then you don't make money, eventually that money begins to run out. And that's exactly what happened for this younger son. The younger son ran out of money. He was forced to find a job. He actually found a job feeding pigs. I imagine he probably wasn't making much. And the Bible actually tells us that he became so hungry that he was looking at the pods that pigs were eating. He thought to himself, mm mm that sure does look good. And eventually that younger son thought to himself, he goes, well, maybe I can go back to my dad. Maybe I can go back to my father. He's never going to accept me as a son, but I bet you he'll accept me as a slave. And so he goes back to his father, and, and, the, and the story goes, that and I, I always imagine the story that the father's house was maybe far away, up a long road. The Bible tells us that as the father saw the son walking, the man got up from his chair and ran to his son. And he embraced his son. And the Bible says that he put a ring on his son's finger, that he put a robe on his back, that he kissed his son, that he welcomed his son. And the Bible even says that he threw him a welcome home party. But the Bible also tells us that the older brother wasn't very pleased. The Bible tells us that essentially the older brother said to his son, Father, how could you treat a man so well who has treated you so poorly? And so you know what the older son does? He leaves the party. You know what the father does? The father goes out and he finds his older son. You see, this is the part of the story a lot of people miss. The older son has separated himself from the father, just like the younger son. Sure, he hasn't gone as far. He hasn't done the same things. He hasn't lived the same kind of lifestyle. But he has still separated himself from fellowship with the Father by his own volition. And yet the Father still stands there ready to receive him back. And this is essentially where God stands with you and I each and every day. God stands ready to welcome back the religious and the irreligious sinners right back to him. God stands there ready to welcome back both sons. And so it is our job to wrestle. And I love the Apostle Paul. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's our job to work out our eternal destination. And and when we come to grasp where where we are going to go when we die, we need to understand that the Father is always ready to welcome us back. And so my hope for you this morning is that you would wrestle with that. My hope for you this morning is that you would look into your hearts and find that root of hypocrisy that we all have and try to rid yourself of it. My challenge you this morning is not to say one thing and do another. My challenge you this morning is to preach and practice. My challenge you this morning is not to be a Robert Courtney. So with that, let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father God Almighty, we thank you for this morning. And Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that though we are so often hypocritical in our faith, that you still choose to love us. And Lord, we thank you that you were faithful. Lord, we thank you that you lived a perfect life on this world, that you were never a hypocrite. And Lord, we thank you that despite your perfection, you took and you died on the cross for our sin. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room this morning who may not know you. Lord, I pray that you convict them of their sins and you would draw them to yourself. Lord, we ask that you to bless the rest of our morning together. We love you and praise your name. Amen. 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 Alright, Brother John, i'll relinquish it to you, you have left. i have 30 minutes left well you know i, I will say this after i after pastor phil, after i preached that class for pastor phil I, I got up and i sat down and i was i was absolutely terrified i thought i don't know what's going to happen and he walks up to the stand and he goes well i guess there's no such thing as a bad short sermon i actually had a professor at bible college who would always tell us he goes people don't mind when the sermon is short they begin to mind when the sermon is extra long so maybe today we'll beat people to the coffee bar <laughs> who knows Thank you. I, yeah, I, I could s- yeah we can do that if any for the- let's, let's do that I appreciate that that's well wow, perfect any questions you know you're not gonna know you're you're a hypocrite if you do not know what God expects of you um, I went to a conference this last Monday and kind of going with this whole idea of first knowing the scriptures I also think there needs to be a certain level of uh, accountability Uh, I'm not a big athlete but you guys have probably all heard of Lance Armstrong Um, now think of what you will about him Um, but when Lance Armstrong when he is on a race you you may notice that there's there's men who are around him on other bikes that's actually called a peloton and the idea is if you're in the middle and you have men around you there's actually less wind resistance and you can go faster for further uh, essentially, we all need our own Peloton. Uh, you may not know that you're being a hypocrite, but maybe your, your brother in Christ does. Um, so I'd encourage you to get friends or brother, people in this family, friends, family members, people in this class, um, and allow them to be honest and open with you. So know the word and, and have a godly counsel to kind of advise you and point you in the right way. That's a good question. Anybody else? You can or you could just ask your spouse. You yeah, probably be pretty honest with you. <laughs> Hey. She's not here. She goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's... You yeah, you don't have to ask. Bill. Wow. We're getting... We're getting real today in manna. All right. I'll be honest. Yeah. Who needs yeah? ask? Woo. Yes. You know, it's actually kind of amazing. You guys know that uh, 72% of the United States, of Americans here in our country, still associate with some form of Protestant Christianity. Pretty wild. If you look at the world we live in, I'm going to say that 72% of our country are definitely not followers of Jesus. You know, we all need to reflect. You know, the funny story about that, Ron, is when we were in India, I don't tell most people this, um, there was a guy named Jeff Bland who used to go to our church, and me and Jeff, we were manly crying together. Um, and Jeff said, hey, man, I really have to go to the bathroom. Let's continue this time of prayer in the restroom. <laughs> and I said, I said, Okay. I'd, all right so we went in the restroom and Jeff uh, you know is a spiritual mentor to me he's like five or six years older than me and he goes all right Monty when I pray I like to to be on my knees in prayer and I thought "Man, Jeff we're in a men's restroom but I said okay like I don't know I'm 15 16 years old I'm like I guess this is what you do and so so me and Jeff I mean we're like and I'm sorry we're in front of the urinals <laughs> and 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 we're praying, and I'm, I'm pouring out my heart to God, and, and Jeff just, he just stops. And I said, Jeff, what's wrong? And he goes, look down. And sure enough, a lot of people missed the urinals that day. And I said, <laughs> I said Jeff. So, man, I, I don't know. I must have been bitter in my sin, Ron, because <laughs> the Lord punished me 15 minutes later in that restroom. It was awful. All right. Yes, sir. My biggest challenge in the viewing of the college group man that is a good question um, I'll answer that I'm am I'm gonna actually give a little remark to your first little comment I will say this I went away to Bible College and I'm going to seminary right now and I truthfully I think the majority of my training and my upbringing didn't come from college or seminary It actually came from Sunday school teachers and a lot of workers uh, I was amazed when I went to school and we had to do scripture memorization um, our professors say okay you got to memorize these verses I'm like I know these verses and it wasn't because I was a great student of the Word. It was because of guys like German, of the Shavinsky's, and, and the Medeiros. It was, it was Awana leaders, the Sunday school teachers. So that's kind of my encouragement. If you're Awanas, keep doing it, even when kindergartners eat glue. So, <laughs> uh, but to answer your second question about maybe the most unexpected challenge uh, with um, college ministry, there's actually a lot of them. i have only been doing it for about a year. But I actually think probably hypocrisy, what we talked about today. Um, Thankfully, the college ministry has been growing. And, and the cool thing is when, when churches grow properly and ministries grow properly, they should draw in a lot of unbelievers. Um, and so we've been doing that. Um, I was counting last Thursday night. We meet on Thursdays now. And I think we had about 90 people in the room. And I think 40 of them, I could tell you for certain, are not followers of Jesus. Uh, but of those 40, probably 35 think they are. Um, So that's kind of been the biggest challenge for me, is trying to find a loving way to look at these college students and say, hey, you're not going to heaven when you die. You think you are, but you're not. And truthfully, I've kind of done that poorly at times, and that's hurt people a little bit this past year. Um, That's kind of getting, I'm getting refined in that way. Uh, But that's been a challenge. Um, I also, and this is more joking, you know, there's a a budget challenge, because I've learned that if college students ask you to go to lunch, they want you to pay. (laughs) So, and there is, there is, there is no shame in what they'll order. Um, this last th- Thursday night. Yeah, oh, I was, it was uh, this last Thursday night. They say, hey, you're going to come. This is how they deceive you, like kindergarten. <laughs> they say, would you like to come with us? They are inviting you. I was not inviting them. And hey, would you like to come with us to Raising Canes? I said, yeah, thanks for the invite. So I show up to Raising Canes after church. I get in line, I order. Without asking, the next guy, his name is Corey, walks up and he goes, I'll have the chicken sandwich. And I was like, oh, will you, Corey? But I didn't know what to do, so I just let it happen. And then the other guy went after him. So that's the other challenge is I need to stop letting those guys <laughs> ring me dry. Good question. Yes, sir. Yeah. You know, that's a good question. And I'll, I'll actually tell you this. This last year, me and Pastor Brian sat down, and this isn't bragging, but we actually lost 20% in our churches last year, which is pretty good. Um, but I'm not that old, and so a lot of my friends who I, I went to school with, uh, I've seen that firsthand. Or guys who I've grown up with in the church, they've walked away from the Christian faith. And I know there's a lot of different answers for that, and one of them, you, people immediately and say, well, it's, uh, they're not saved, and there are arguments like that. But I'm looking at the guys and dear and close friends of me who I love, and I think one of the biggest reasons that they walked away from the faith was just kind of passive parenting. Um, they were given the choice to go to church. I will tell you guys what, I was never given the choice to go to church. Um, and I remember one time I asked my dad if I couldn't go to church and I thought I was gonna get whooped. You know, it was absolutely awful. But I mean that's important. The parents kinda set the they set the pace. You know, the parents are, are shocked when their kids walk away from the, the faith, but how how can they be shocked if they're only going to church once a month? You know, if it's not a priority in your household, it won't be a priority in their household. So that's a big one. And, and some of it, too, and, and, and even with that, I, we can't lay it all on the parents. Sometimes, and I don't think this is the case at Valley, sometimes churches just don't maybe have the resources to equip their students um, as greatly as they can. Um, for instance, there's uh, one of my life group leaders. When he turned 18 years old, he had just graduated. Uh, their youth pastor left the, the church, and they said, okay, you're going to be the youth pastor now. He wasn't prepared be the youth pastor. And so that next couple years, they had students walk away from the faith, walk away from the faith, but he didn't know any better. He couldn't prepare them. Uh, I don't think that happens here at Valley. I think we have a really capable staff. The, the high school pastor today, was my high school pastor then, Pastor Jeremy, he does a great job. Pastor Luke does a great job. But yeah, I think the main thing is parenting and, and setting the pace. Um, so that's important. Make your kids go to church. You know, if they don't like it, I'll tell you this, I did not like it. As much as I love Ramaderos. I did not like going to his Sunday school class. Um, <laughs> there was a couple reasons for that, but I won't get into those. A good question. Yes, ma'am. We have some real prayer warriors in here. How yeah. we yeah, I guess, yeah, for me personally, I'm going to say the biggest prayer request for me is time management. Um, I've been married for a little over a year, and me and Hannah, my wife, were just talking about this, and it seems like we never have any time to ourselves. Um, we actually, I was just talking with this, about this to Rod, and our church administrator, and, and I think a lot of it has to do with this little thing right here. It's just work never stops. It was funny because Hannah's grandpa, he just passed away. He's 90 years old. Um, he was a pastor his entire life. And he told me, he goes, I think it's harder to be a pastor today. He goes, because work just never ends. Um, he, said, he said, work never ended for me, but people would have to, they would have to really need you because they'd have to drive to my house and knock. He goes, now they just hit you up with the celliest requests. Um, so maybe time management, and we're trying to figure that out a little better. Um, especially for school. I'm going to school and preaching every week. It's kind of not fun, but I like the preaching part. I don't like the school part. Um... <laughs> and a bunch of other things, too. Pray for the ministry. Pray for... We're going through the book of Romans right now, which is a really heavy book for these college students to go through. Uh, so pray for them. And pray for those 40-plus kids who come to now each and every week and who, like most Americans, believe they're going to heaven when they die. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a bummer. There's a quote. I, I'm going to misquote it, but it says, most of the people in our country who are going to hell are usually in our pews every Sunday morning. Right. You know. So pray for those people, not only at Renown, but at Valley Baptist Church. You know? Thank you. Yes, sir. Are you guys active in an apologetics type thing to for your students to get ready to face those challenges? Yeah, just a little bit. Yeah. Um, so if they stay in town, uh, I'll preach from I'll tell you from the, the college ministry perspective and the high school perspective. If they are in town, Uh, we try to make it a priority to get them evangelizing. Uh, Personally, I think the best apologetics approach is to jump right in. Um, So it's not uncommon to find people from Valley, walk around Cal State or B.C. or Taft College, and we're just walking around telling people about Jesus, and and we'll tag students along who don't know how to share the faith, and we'll just let them learn. Um, So we do stuff like that, and that's a huge emphasis in our high school department. Um, So Pastor Jeremy, he's big on on mission trips and evangelism and getting these high schoolers to, to kind of Uh, get out of their shells and uh, to share their faith. So apologetics is a big thing. Um, Thankfully, kind of what's neat is uh, what I'm really proud of is a lot of our college students, they're really proud of their faith and they are excited to share their faith and defend their faith. Um, But one bummer was we used to have our college service on Wednesday nights um, which takes away from the ability for our students to go to equip classes. If you guys aren't in equip classes, I highly recommend you try an equip class out. Uh, But moving our college... uh, Midweek service to Thursdays has actually allowed them to go to a lot of apologetics courses. And that's not even something we have to make them do. They just want to go. And so that was one of the biggest wins when I pr- proposed to them, hey, let's move to Thursday so they like, sweet, we can go to equip classes. So there's an emphasis. There's not, I guess, I can't say there's a formal, like, training we do regularly, but it happens every single week, um, which is good. Anybody else? Yes, sir. How, how did you rate a you in your... I'm going to say it was very effective. Um, kind of going back, it was mainly just that scripture memory thing. You know, I had a, I went to a Baptist school, but that didn't mean that everybody who went there had to be Baptist. Um, and I remember my freshman year, I'm on my dorm hallway, and there was a guy in the pastoral studies program, <laughs> and I was asking him, I was, we were talking about, so I don't remember, it was something about the Bible. We were talking about the Bible, because that's what you do in a Baptist school, I guess. And, and he goes, well, I, I don't read my Bible. And I was like, what? <laughs> how like you know I was a lazy freshman like we don't have to read anymore yeah. um, he goes I don't read the Bible and he was bold about it I said, Well, why don't you read the Bible I was like, okay here we go and he goes well I know that if I need a word from God the spirits gonna give it to me and I think that's kind of foolish you know I think one of the, the things that we need to understand is the Spirit of God is only gonna draw really from what we know what we equip ourselves with and so I'm thinking about my journey through college not even just trying to study but even just trying to be a man of God um, it was stuff like Awanas and scripture memory that I think a lot of times saved me because that was the verses that came to my mind when I needed them. It was the things that Awanas leaders, they drilled you, drilled you, drilled you, drilled, you, drilled and then they give you a sticker, and you're like, man, yeah. <laughs> Nine hours of work for this, you know. But I mean, I, I would say it was, it was majorly, even may, maybe more so than even just being in a life group. You know, because I mean, a life group, it, it's great, but it, as a little kid, you know, you're not paying attention. Or even in high school, you, you kind of, Maybe you're there for the wrong reasons, to hang out with friends. But when you have somebody drilling you, drilling you, drilling you on verses, and you know you're not—they're not, not going to leave you alone until you're done. Uh, you, you learn them, you know. So I tell you what: when you're not learning your verses, Ron looks pretty angry, you know. So he'll—he'll he'll scare you. I—I I think by the time I was done with Ron's class, I knew most of the New Testament. It was, and it wasn't out of compassion; it was out of fear, you know. I was, was like, man, Ron can snap my arm if he wanted to. That's a good question. Brother John, is it your turn? I hope so.